You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good to be with you guys this morning. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Like Chairman just prayed, my name is Tim. I currently serve as the lead pastor of a new, brand new church called Citizens Church. Yeah, that's uh, being started this summer in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. So if you got friends in Charlotte or you uh, are moving to Charlotte yourself, hit me up. Let's chat. Starting a new church up there. But super excited to get to continue in the spirit of seeing God glorified in this place. Amen. That's what we're after as a church. That's what we're after as the people of God. That's what we aim for and long for is that God would be glorified inside of us and inside of this body. And so what we're doing this morning is we're continuing week three of this series, Why I'm a Christian, where we're talking about not so much the what's that we believe, but the why we believe what we believe. And so week one, we talked about why we believe that God exists. Why do we think that God exists? Week two, we talked about why we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, why he actually got up out of the grave and why we believe that. And this week we're talking about the Bible, God's word. Why do we trust it? Why do we hold it up as authority? Why do we gather and sit and hear it preached and proclaimed over our lives for 40 minutes once a week? Why do we sing it? Why do we speak it to one another in our life groups? Why do we get up every morning and read it? Why do we trust the Bible? I'll start with this. The Bible is controversial. So maybe you might not feel that. If you are like me, you grew up in the American South, you might not feel this controversial nature of the Bible. right? So maybe you had five or ten just kind of laying around your house growing up, sitting there on the coffee table, looking pretty like the rug, right? It's just this normal thing you had in your home, this normal thing that you talked about, this normal thing, whatever. Maybe it was kind of weird to bring it to school. Maybe you were a little bit afraid of that. But for the most part, in our American South, in Columbia, South Carolina, in 2020, the Bible is not that controversial. But across the world and across time, this book has been a big deal for a lot of people. So in the 14 and 1500s, men got burned at the stake for wanting to translate it into a language that people could read. They would actually make piles with the Bible that they translated and use it as the flame starter to burn these people at the stake. Throughout history, these uh, diplomat or these um, dictator regimes like Nazi Germany would use the Bible as either a poor tool to try to justify what they were doing or they would censor it and deny people access to it. There's something so controversial about the word of God. Even today, 52 different countries around the world, it is illegal to either give out or to own a copy of the scriptures. 52 countries. Why is this such a big deal? Today, get on Twitter. Right, and just scroll for just under a minute and you will see that somebody is upset about something that the scripture does say or doesn't say or how they translate it or shouldn't translate it or, or what it says or, or whatever. People get so upset about this book, so upset about God's word. And so we have to ask the question, why do we hold it up? Right, if it's so controversial, if people get so mad about it, why do we as the people of God trust it as our authority? 
Why do we hold it up as being what's most important, as what we want to center our lives around? But what I want to do before we talk about why we trust it is I want to make sure that we're on the same page about what it is. Because actually, confusion about what the Bible is actually creates a lot of controversy in and of itself. So that's where we're going to start. 2 Timothy 3. Tremont already read it, but I want to read it again for us. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the seat backs in front of you. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete. If you're an underliner in your Bible, underline that word complete. We're going to circle back to it at the end. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, let me just show you where we're going today. I got to do about 25, 30 minutes of teaching, and then we're going to circle back with five minutes of preaching at the end. All right, and I promise it's going to be worth it. You just got to stick with me in all of the, the tough things that we're going to have to navigate. So we're going to start here. What the Bible is. What the Bible is. Number one, the Bible is a library. The Bible is a library. So Paul uses two terms in this passage to talk about the Bible. He says sacred writings and scripture. Both are plural. See, the title Bible is actually misleading. So Bible comes from the Latin Biblia, which means book. And so we think that the Bible is one book, and what we read within it is chapters. Right? So we think we have the chapter of Genesis, or the chapter of Matthew, or the chapter of Acts, or the chapter of whatever. But, but much more accurately, the Bible is not just a book. It's actually a library, a collection of many books. The Bible is actually 66 different books. The content spans roughly 1,500 years, from 1,400 B.C., before Christ, to 100 A.D. There are dozens of authors. They write in different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. They're in different geographic locations, Egypt, Israel, and Rome, and they write different genres. So there's narrative, there's poetry, there's wisdom, there's letters, there's history, there's apocalyptic or end times literature. And so what happens is we come at a library with a different perspective than we come at a book, right? So we come at a library expecting there's going to be different styles, We come at it expecting there's going to be different authors, there's going to be different genres, there's going to be different worldviews, different points of perspective. And so when we realize that, we know that how we approach a certain book affects how we read it. And that should be true of the Bible. So none of us, unless you are very strange, we can talk about it after, none of us on a Saturday night at 9 o'clock are going to curl up with a hot cup of tea and a math textbook. Right? Right? Similarly, none of us are going to wake up at 6 in the morning tomorrow morning with a highlighter and a pen and a strong cup of coffee ready to dissect the ins and outs of twilight. Like, we just don't do that. Right? How the book is, what the book is, affects how you read it. And so a lot of controversy happens when we approach approach different parts of Scripture how we shouldn't approach them. So we'll read poetry like we should be reading letters. We read the letters like we should be reading narrative, or we read historical accounts like we should be reading apocalyptic literature, whatever it may be. So the first thing is the Bible is a library. Secondly, the Bible is written by both God and men. 
Bible is written by both God and men. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's like a bad trick question, right? Did God write the Bible or did man write the Bible? Yes. Right? They both did. This is how Jesus actually says it, Mark 12.36. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's a direct quote from Psalm 110. So notice, not just David, right? So he doesn't say David writing his own opinion, David writing his own perspective, David just airing out what's on his heart. He also says it's not just the Holy Spirit. So it's not like David just fell asleep and he woke up and there's a pen and a paper, paper and it's, look, oh, look, I wrote Psalm 110. That's not how it happened. David with the Holy Spirit, God and man. It's the second thing. The third thing, the Bible tells a unified story that leads to Jesus. As Paul says it here in verse 15, sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the scriptures, the purpose of this book that you hold in your hand is pointing us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So it's not, it it definitely includes history, but it's not primarily a history book. It definitely includes life lessons and good principles for life, but it is so much more than just a self-help type of guide. It includes good teachings, but it's so much more than just good teachings. This book talks about and tells and points to Jesus, right? So Genesis through the whole Old Testament, right? Genesis through Malachi points to Jesus who is to come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John point to a Jesus who is here, And then Acts through Revelation point to a Jesus who came and who is coming again. The point and climax of the whole scripture that you read points to Jesus. He's all over it. Everything you read, no matter where you pick it up. Habakkuk. If we ever read Habakkuk, right? You get into Habakkuk. Jesus is there. It points to him. Luke, it points to him. That one's a little easier because it's his life. 1 Corinthians, it points to him. The whole story of the scriptures are about Jesus. So why do we trust it? Right? To be fair, everything I just told you came from scripture. Right? So if you're thinking clearly, you might think, okay, but that's what the Bible says about itself. Why do we trust it? Why do we actually think it's authoritative? Why do we think it's true? Let me give you two reasons. Two reasons why it's not crazy to trust the Bible. Number one, Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. Andrew Wilson, in his book, Unbreakable, wrote this. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, then I will too. Notice this. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So if Jesus is alive... Right? As Ant proved last week with how many reasons did you do? Ten? Ten reasons why Jesus was alive. If Jesus is alive, which we say is all over the place with historical evidence and the scriptures, if he is alive, then clearly what he says about the Bible is true. Right? If God got out of the grave, then I think I would trust his opinion on his book more than I trust my opinion on his book. Right? And if we read this story of Jesus, we know about some of the things that he did. Right? So we know about his miracles. We know about how he, how he healed 
how he gave the blind sight, how he fed the 5,000, how he walked on water, how he calmed the wind and the waves. But one of the aspects of Jesus' ministry that we forget about a lot is how much he taught and spoke about the scriptures. In fact, over 75 times, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, often clarifying what it says, often giving it authority and weight over people's lives often making sure people know, hey, this is good and true, never denying its power, never denying its authority, never denying how clear and true it is. Jesus' ministry is marked by teaching and, re- and reminding people of the scriptures. One of the instances I enjoy the most of this, if we had time, I'd take you there, but it's Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is when Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Right, so the devil shows up to Jesus. He's been fasting, no food, no water for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil tempts him three times. So the first time he says, hey, Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights. That is a long time without food. See these stones? Make these stones into bread. You know how Jesus responds? Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. Quotes the Old Testament. He gives it authority. He gives it weight. He gives it sufficiency. Devil comes back again, takes him up to the temple. Says, Jesus, throw yourself down. The angels will surely save you. Jesus, again, Deuteronomy 6.16. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Boom, Old Testament. Third time, Satan takes Jesus up and shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, if you worship me, I'll give you all of this. And guess what Jesus does? Right? Deuteronomy 13.4. Old Testament gives it weight, gives it authority, gives it sufficiency. Time and time again, Jesus holds up the scriptures. So maybe you're thinking, all right, but the New Testament wasn't around when Jesus was around, right? So he quotes the Old Testament. He gives the Old Testament authority. What about the New Testament? Look at this with me. John 14, 25 and 26, Jesus talking to his disciples, to his followers. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So biblical scholars say this is where Jesus commissions the writing of the New Testament. And he says, hey, I've told you these things. I've taught you these things. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you more. He'll teach you what to preach. He'll teach you what to write. He'll teach you what to say. So Jesus is one reason. One reason why we trust the Bible. Let me give you one more. It's a little bit more of even a deep dive. Number two, the historical documents. The historical documents. Don't roll your eyes. Don't fall asleep. I promise this is good. All right, I promise this is good. So some of what you might hear from the larger culture or from skeptics or from your friends is that what we have in the English Bible, what we hold here is a little bit like the telephone game. So anybody remember the telephone game growing up? Right, so you would sit in a circle, and one person who would start would say a phrase or a story to the person next to them, and they'd whisper it to them. Then that person would whisper it to the next person, and they would whisper it to the next person, and then the next, and the next, and the next, until it got to the last person, and the last person would say something totally different than the original person, and everyone has a great laugh, and it's fun, hilarious, ha, ha, ha. This was before iPhones, so that's why we did this. Right, we had to occupy ourselves in some way, right? So what people say is, hey, you can't trust what you hold in your hands because it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a translation of a translation of some folklore that some shepherds and fishermen made up thousands of years ago. You can't trust it. Let me take a minute to prove to you why you can. 
Let me take a minute. Because while they might be right, we actually don't have the original manuscripts. Let me prove that what we have is still good and still sufficient. Let's start with the New Testament because it's the easiest. New Testament, the sheer quantity of manuscripts for the New Testament is astounding. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We have over 8,000 Latin manuscripts. We have over 1,000 manuscripts in other languages like Syriac and Coptic. And among all of those manuscripts, there's 99.5% congruence. That means they say 99.5% of the same thing. Now, this is crazy when you compare it to other ancient literature. All right, so I got a chart. It's going to be a ton of fun, okay? (laughs) Hopefully, you guys all remember being assigned to these in high school. Definitely not reading them, maybe being assigned them. At least that was me. All right, so the first one, the author is a guy by the name of Euripides. Euripides wrote about 440 BC. The earliest copies we have from him are 1,500 years later in 1100 AD. Nine copies. The accuracy is we actually don't have enough copies to construct the original. Let me give you another one, Plato. Plato's famous for writing The Republic. He wrote around 380 B.C. The earliest copy we have for him is 1,300 years later in A.D. 900. Number of copies, seven. Aristotle, famous Aristotle philosopher, writing around 350 B.C. Earliest copy we have is 1,400 years later. Number of copies is five. Okay, so if you're thinking clearly, those are all fictional writers. I didn't know that. I had to research that. Those are all fictional writers. But let me give you a few historians, a few historians in that day. The first is Herodotus. He wrote around 450 B.C. The earliest copies we have from him are 900 A.D., 1,350 years later. Get excited. We're up to eight copies. Let me give you one more. Tacitus. Tacitus wrote in AD 100, so we're now post the life of Jesus. Earliest copies we have from him were a thousand years later. Look at this, 20. Okay. <laughs> Pretty good. Now let's look at the New Testament. Written around 60 AD, less than 100 years later, 14,000 copies with 99.5% accuracy. So if you don't trust the reliability of the New Testament, then you have to never go into a library ever again. And librarians would be sad, (laughs) right? And English teachers would be sad because this doesn't line up. And we so easily are like, yeah, obviously Plato wrote Republic. What I'm not saying is that you shouldn't trust that Plato wrote Republic. Obviously these people wrote good things. We don't reject them. But here's the thing, if you're not going to reject them, then you definitely cannot reject 14,000 copies of manuscripts. Where's God's word? It's true. That's the New Testament. Let's look at the Old Testament. A little bit harder. We have a few less, but still great reason to trust it. Got another table. I told you this morning was going to be fun. First one they have is the, is the Masoretic text. So the Masoretic text, which dates between 600 and 1200 AD. So to set it up, the Old Testament was written around between 1400 BC and 400 BC. So 1400 to 400 years before Christ. So we have the Masoretic text, dates between 600 and 1200 AD. Contains the entire Hebrew Bible. A lot of our English translations, especially the early ones, were based off of this. If you're looking at that, you're like, all right, that's, that's pretty good. Not compared to the New Testament, but it's all right. Do you have anything earlier? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Septuagint. 
Septuagint, dated between 250 BC and 70 AD. And Septuagint is the Latin word for 70. Because what happens is the Greek pharaoh, the Greek king of Egypt, commissions 70 different scholars, Hebrew scholars, to go by themselves and to translate the Hebrew Old Testament. So he says, hey, don't talk to each other, don't compare notes, go, all 70 of you, take your Hebrew manuscripts and translate it into Greek, the dominant language of the time. As the story goes, when these 70 scribes came back together and showed each other their work, they all translated the Hebrew Bible in basically the exact same way. Here we are, just a few hundred years after it was written. Let me give you one more. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Dates between 300 B.C. and 130 A.D. So this was actually a pretty recent discovery, 1946 1947. It's a wild story. It's kind of like real life Goonies. So a uh, shepherd boy was out in the field and he got bored. I'm not even t- this is actually how it happened. And so this boy in this, one, in this field decides he's just going to throw some rocks. So he finds a cave and he picks up rocks and he's throwing them into the back of the cave. And suddenly he throws one and he hears this pot uh, shatter. And what he had discovered, this shepherd boy in the wilderness throwing rocks, is an entire system of caves and tunnels containing manuscripts from as early as 300 B.C., containing all but one of the books of the Old Testament. They're actually still uncovering more and more manuscripts today. This is one of the, widely known as one of the largest and most important archaeological discoveries of this century. What's incredible is if you take the Masoretic text and you take the Septuagint and you take the Dead Sea Scrolls and their original manuscripts, you find that all of them are saying the exact same thing. You can trust God's word. Historical documents show it. Jesus trusted it. All right, so everybody take a breath. Wake up if you've fallen asleep. Let me preach for about five minutes and then we'll get out of here. So all of this is evidence why you can trust the Bible, right? The manuscripts show it. Jesus trusted it and taught it and held it up as authority. But I would guess, based on my own personal experience, based on my years of ministry, based on interacting with people as a pastor and a staff member of a church, that most of us don't trust the Bible, and it has nothing to do with manuscripts. It has nothing to do with historical reliability or translations, Let me get to why. I think Andrew Wilson puts it really well. He says, let's be honest. The scriptures can be difficult. Sometimes the difficulties come from within the texts themselves. Accounts vary. Theology develops. Tensions exist. And authors bring different perspectives on things. Not to mention the fact that all the texts were written in languages and cultures which are completely different from ours. In my experience, though, Most of these difficulties are fairly easy to resolve with a mixture of study, imagination, and honesty. They can make people puzzled, but they rarely make people angry. The things that really get people riled up, at least in our day, are areas where Scripture challenges our deeply held beliefs. When you get into conversations about the Bible, you find that the biggest challenges for most people are not over issues where the Bible is unclear, but over issues where the Bible is very clear and people don't like it. Judgment, miracles, sex, things like that. So much of our distrust of the Bible is because we actually don't like what it says all the time. Right? It has nothing to do with translations, nothing to do with manuscripts. 
Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York City who we've quoted a lot for this series and pulled from a lot from this series, says that uh, after meeting after meeting, he kind of learned that whenever someone from his church would want to sit down with him, and they would start the conversation with something like, hey, uh, pastor, I, I, just, I just feel like I'm walking away from the faith. Like, I feel like I've tried, and I just have so much theological problems with the Bible. He said it became, after time, his response to them would be, all right, so who are you sleeping with? Now, he's 70, so he can say things like that. I'm not. Maybe in 40 years, circle back, I'll let you know how our church is doing in Charlotte. And look, this is the the funny but a little bit real way of saying that what happens is when our lives and our worldviews and our opinions and our desires don't line up with Scripture, right? When we want things that the Bible says we shouldn't want, when we don't want things the Bible says we should want, when we differ and disagree with the Bible, it is so much easier on our conscience to say things like, well, I just think translations, you know? like manuscripts, and like what is the Dead Sea Scrolls anyway? Right, it's so much easier on our conscience to do that than just to be honest and admit, hey, I want things the Bible says I don't want, and so I'm walking away from Jesus because I don't want to live as he calls me to live, or believe as he calls me to believe, or love as he calls me to love. It's so much easier to just say, well, I got a problem with the historical data, when in reality we have a problem with the God who wrote the scriptures. So what happens is, What happens is we want to be the exception to the rule. Because let me tell you what happens. We actually don't want anyone else to get to do what we do with the Bible. So what we do with the Bible is we pick and choose. So we read through here, and we're like, all right, let's look at this. A little scripture. All right, Jesus, yep, yep, feeding the 5,000. I'm good with that. It's kind of weird, but whatever, I'm good. Right, all right, leaves the 99 to chase the one. I'm here for this. Right, I like this Jesus. All right, okay, okay. He's calling out the rich ruler. I like this Jesus. Yeah, yeah giving, okay, yeah, I'm here for that. Oh, what's this? Every spiritual blessing? Okay, all right, I am here for the spiritual blessings. Let me, Ephesians, are you, okay, immeasurably more than I ask or imagine. I like Jesus. I'm here for Jesus. Oh, oh wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. First, first Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. So we just, we just take it out. Oh, what about, what about this thing where it says that I'm supposed to take up my cross and suffer if I want to follow Jesus? I, just, I don't really like that part. What about the thing where I'm supposed to forgive the person who hurt me? Not seven times, but 70 times. Seven times. I'm going to go ahead and, where's my white out? I got that. You know, it's a crazy story. So Thomas Jefferson, right, crazy story, American, uh, one of the kind of founding father type people, he actually got so fed up with his Bible, right, he was trying to, to follow God, whatever, for 70 years, when he turned 70, he got so fed up with the Bible that one morning during his quiet time, he actually physically took a piece of scissors and cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. And he put together a version of scripture, a version of God's word that fit his worldview and what he thought the Bible should say. You can actually go and buy it online right now. I do not recommend it. <laughs> but here's the thing. That shocks us, right? I was asking, I was asking my wife earlier uh, and talking to Aunt about this too. And I was like, Aunt, can I, can I just rip out a piece of the Bible to help make this point? And he said, no, you cannot do that. And my wife said she would cry. So I'm definitely not 
doing that because she's due in four weeks. So that's not a good look for me right now. But here's the thing. We get so shocked if someone was to physically take a Bible and rip out a page. But we do that all the time in our minds and in our lives and in our hearts. And I do it too. I had a conversation yesterday when we were talking about something in the Bible. And I said, look, I don't know that I like that. Like, I'm going to be real. They were asking me about my opinion on something, and I was like, look, I wish the Bible said something that it didn't say. It's God's word. It's authority. And here's the thing. Let me get back to the point I was making. We don't want other people to get to pick and choose the Bible like we get to pick and choose. You actually want the Bible to confront everyone else. So let me give you, let me give you some examples of this. That, that guy who is physically or emotionally abusing his wife. You actually want the Bible to call him out, right? You want him to read Colossians 3, 9 that says that he should love his wife and be patient with his wife and not dismiss it. That business owner who's taking advantage of you or his employees, you actually want him to read Proverbs 11, which says that unbalanced books are an abomination to the Lord and you want him to be convicted. That woman who keeps gossiping and spreading lies about you, You want her to read Ephesians 4.29, which tells her to build up and not tear down with her words. And you want her to not dismiss it or cut it out or tear it apart. You want her to be convicted by it. Let me give you a few more of that racist down the street. You want him to read Galatians, which says that we are one in Christ Jesus. And you don't want him to dismiss it. You want him to be convicted by it. People across the globe that view others as less than because of their class or how much money they have. You want them to be convicted. You want them to read the Bible, brought into the power of the Bible. You want the Bible to have power over others, other people's lives that you don't give it over yours, that I don't give it over mine. Right? So I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and by God's grace, hopefully I'll get in this, this book, and there are going to be things that I don't want to let speak into my life. Instead of letting the Bible read me and convict me and have power over me, I want to have power and conviction and read the Bible instead. But if we do that, if we pick and choose, if we treat the Bible like some buffet line at Golden Corral, right, where we're just like, I like this little bit and this little bit, and maybe I'll go back for this little bit. If we treat it like that rather than God's word, which all of it, 2 Timothy 3 says, is God-breathed, we actually rob the Bible of its power in our lives. Right, so if Ann gets up to preach on a Sunday and he's teaching a text that you don't particularly like, you rob the spirit in that moment from having any power to speak into the areas of your life that you don't want to give it power over. But the Bible is not something that you get to have boundaries around. Right, it gets to speak into those areas of your life that you don't want it to. It gets to call you out for that sin that you don't want it to. It gets to, to remind you of God's goodness when you don't want it to. The Bible doesn't play by our rules. And we rob it of power when we say, no, I like these parts, but I don't like these parts, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut out that, and I'm going to take away that instead of letting it speak into our lives. So 2 Timothy 3 says, let's revisit this, and then we'll, we'll close. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You will never grow as a Christian if you only follow the parts of the Bible that agree with you. You just won't. You need all scripture for completeness.
That's what Paul says. And that's what we want, right? All of us want to be complete. All of us, if we are truly followers of Jesus, want to grow up into the image of Christ. We just talked about it. The manuscripts are there. The historical documents are there. Jesus trusted it. So the question is for us, are we going to trust it too? And not just the parts we like, but all of it to speak into our lives so that we may be equipped and made complete in Christ Jesus. Is what we're already invited to by the cross, right? By Jesus who gave his life for us to make us new, to make us his. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. And we're grateful for all of it. And we're grateful for Genesis through Revelation. And for being honest, there are parts that all of us in here don't like. Because they rub against our, our worldview, they rub against our desires, they rub against our feelings and our emotions, they rub against what we want for our lives, what we desire for our lives. So we're going one way and we, we get into your word and by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you call us in another direction and that is hard. Would you help us to be a people that trust your word? Not just to trust it on some knowledge level, not just to trust that, yeah, it says some good things and some good life principles and some good life lessons, but actually trust that it has power in our lives for us to be made complete in you, to be built up in the image of Christ, which is your goal and your will for all believers, that we would mature, we would grow up into you. Would you help us? God, we need your help to be humble. We need your help to be submissive to your authority, to your weight, to your call on our lives. God, we need your help. Help us to love your word. Help us to wake up in the mornings and desire to get into it because it contains the words of life and truth and goodness and you. We need your help. It's a, it's a spiritual battle. We're not just fighting tiredness. We're not just fighting busyness. God, we're actually fighting our enemy. We're fighting our flesh. We're fighting the devil. We're fighting all of this that would not want us to be with you and to submit to you and to follow you, God. So we need your help. And thanks for Jesus on the cross. Thanks for Jesus who didn't stay dead, but his aunt talked about last week, got up out of the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death. Thank you that we know that because of your word. Thank you that you revealed that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, men wrote, and that you, by your goodness, kept and preserved your scriptures so that 2,000 years later, your church could still stand on the foundation of your word and be about you and sing about you and worship you. God, we love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.